Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is a method and language of integrated practice. It brings the worlds of therapy and conditioning together and helps them become more powerful and more practical. If you live in one or both of these worlds or you use the services of a therapist or conditioning coach, you know that sometimes they don't see eye to eye. They aren't on the same page. Reconditioning provides a time-tested process for aligning these two worlds and creating impactful solutions to performance problems. Follow them at ReconditioningHQ on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or become a member of their Facebook group, Reconditioning HQ Revolution, and join the Reconditioning Revolution. I want to take a minute to connect you to our newest sponsor, Zenkai Sports, who are here with a question for you. Why do we sweat? Our body is perfectly designed to cool us down, but most apparel companies use moisture-wicking fabrics that remove our sweat, which makes us overheat faster and actually hurts our performance. Zenkai uses cutting-edge technology that repels sweat and other liquids. Zenkai apparel lets the sweat stay on your skin, keeping you cool for longer and repelling odor-causing bacteria. This means Zenkai apparel can be worn 10, 15, 20 times with no washing required. This lowers your carbon footprint and saves money, so you can be a hero with your planet and your family. Join the revolution for better apparel technology, what's in your ZNA. We've partnered with Zenkai, so if you head over to www.zenkaisports.com and use the discount code LYM20, you'll get 20% off your entire order. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston and today I have the wonderful privilege of speaking to George Carvajal. George is a performance coach and consultant who works with elite athletes in sport and the tactical world. He has trained thousands of athletes at the University of Florida, the University of Nebraska and the U.S. Olympic Training Center. He has trained over 200 professional athletes who play in the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, World Surf League, Big Wave Tour Surfers, and tactical athletes in the Fire Service SWAT, SRT, and Military Special Operations community. He specializes in using a holistic approach towards athlete optimization. I'm excited to have him on the show today. Welcome, George. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for taking the time. It, uh, you know, I was reading that bio and was looking forward to um, spending some time with you. And one of the things that really lit up in me was the diversity of the type of athlete that you worked with over your career. Is that um, by luck, by intention, or just the way things all just worked out for you that you've worked with such a diverse population? Interesting. It's a little bit of all of the above. Um, mm. I went with football initially because that's that's sort of what my career was. I started high school football player. It was a walk on the University of Florida. Um, that didn't pan out. I went into coaching. Um, I was a surfer, been a surfer for four years. Mm. Uh, just sort of kind of fell into that. And I had a, uh, a close friend whose son failed buds miserably. He was mm. trying to become a Navy SEAL and he just failed miserably. And he said, hey, can you... Uh, can you help my son out a little bit? And I said, sure. I don't know what I could do, but I simply just tweaked a, a couple of things here, there. And he ended up being, uh, going through and being the, I guess the, the number one recruit in his class. And so that 
sort of turned heads a little bit and people started asking, you know, how did you go from the bottom of the barrel to basically getting the trophy? And uh, my name was mentioned and sort of like the you know, saying goes, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So after that, I, I like those populations. Uh, they're very diverse, very different. Um, and it became the intention then to stay with those three and not necessarily pick because I could. I had to choose probably that would be different but uh, been able to do all three for quite a long time without very little interference and um, someone asked me a very good question the other day which does not does that not um, push you more toward burnout and the answer is no I think the variety is what keeps it fresh it's always changing it's um, you know there's travel and stuff involved but uh it was picked now with intent, those particular three sports. It's my niche is what I like. That's what I think I'm good at. And so, yeah, it's a little, it's been a little bit of all three. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to um, dissect that a little bit in uh, a little bit later in our conversation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you, you've served for 40 years. So take me back to childhood. Uh, where were where were you born? Where did you grow up and how, how were you influenced into the sport of, of surfing? Um, I was originally born in Cuba. Uh, My parents brought me in the early 60s, 61 or 60, I think it was, somewhere around 63, I'm sorry, Um, and when I was three months old. Mm. So it's not like I really knew anything. Uh, They came to Miami, and I lived in Miami pretty much my entire life. That's sort of what uh, happened there. So my background is Cuban. Cuban, I like to call myself as an American, but uh, my background is Cuban-American, very rich history and culture. Um, that's essentially where sort of it all started. And, uh, we, every year we would, uh, as when you go to school in the fall, you had to come in front of the class and say, you know, what I did for my summer vacation. And mine was always the same thing. I went to the beach, <laughs> never went to Yellowstone or the mountains or skiing. Uh, we went to the beach and it was only about 20 minutes away because that's all my father could afford. So that's what we did. And, I was in a 7-Eleven, and my father was buying a styrofoam cooler. And right above where the styrofoam cooler was, there was a styrofoam surfboard. And so, <laughs> you know, he looked at it, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, I'd like to have it. And it was only a couple of dollars, so he got it for me and went out in the waves and just kind of, if you know a styrofoam surfboard, it's not necessarily a great surfboard, but it does float. Mm-hmm. It allowed me to float and uh, after a little while playing with it, uh, it looked actually broke in half. And so my dad said, you know, we probably need to get your real surfboard. So we went and got a kind of very small surfboard and I kind of did stuff. I, I didn't know. I just went on a wave. I did body surf and I sort of mimicked what body surfing was on the way on that board. And I actually stood up the very first time I tried mm. and rode it for probably five or six seconds, but I have never forgotten that feeling. Uh, it's indescribable. And anybody who serves, who's ever been up the first time, they'll, they'll tell you the same thing. It was just an unbelievable feeling. And as a result of that, I just kind of pursued that feeling. And I've been pursuing that feeling for, you know, 40 plus years, <laughs> but that's essentially how it started. That's awesome. Did you grow up with a lot of siblings? Were there, was there a competitive aspect of your, your not at all. I had a, had a younger sister, but I grew up in a neighborhood where uh, it was extremely competitive. Every single individual in that neighborhood that went to that school um, was extremely athletic. 
They can play all sports and they can play all sports well. So if you were the guy who just uh, could play pickup basketball, you kind of stood out and not in a good way. Uh, you know, most of the guys that I grew up playing could, could throw, you know, probably 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour on a baseball. They could dunk, they could kick, punt, pass, kick. I mean, they could, they could do it all. So if you could not be a multi sport and very, very diverse athlete, you just, you never played number one. Number two is that you didn't live in that, go to that park, that school for very long because you got ostracized. Mm. So, uh, I grew up with a multi, uh, sport discipline as a background. And uh, when I hear there was a, a Twitter war recently on, you know, should kids specialize or not? And I, I can only, I only have an N equals one perspective and that's mine. And I know what that did to me. Um, I, to this day, I can pretty much do all those things. That's not coincidence. That's skill work, right? Every time I went out there, I practiced a different skill. It wasn't the same repetitive skill over and over. It wasn't throwing a football. It wasn't kicking. Uh, I wasn't trying to shoot a basket or hit a baseball. It was all, all of the above. And mm -hmm. did they make me a better athlete? There's no question in my mind. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very difficult place to grow up. Uh, we played on rock lots. And so the, the key was to be really fast so you didn't get tackled because it wasn't touch. It was actually tackled. <laughs> so if you went to the ground, you got hurt. So you learned to be very fast and very quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what the, was the first exposure I had to change of direction training. <laughs> on gravel so you don't even have great gravel. great yeah. footing <laughs> yeah were your um parents uh, pushers pullers watchers of your 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 studies and your and your athletic career or were uh watchers my 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 parents weren't crazy that i played football mm. uh, back then there was no you didn't hear about concussions of course they happened but it wasn't something that was prevalent uh, my father loved baseball and kind of uh, disowned me a little bit when I chose football. He really liked baseball a lot. <laughs> he was a huge Yankees fan. And I just, I just gravitated toward football for some reason. And the funny thing is I didn't have the size uh, to play football, but that never stopped me. I just enjoyed the game mm -hmm. and I became very intellectual with the game and it never pulled me back, but never really pushed me either. He was very neutral, uh, my mother was very, very uh, supportive and came to the games as much as possible. Didn't understand what was going on, but she just knew, hey, that's my kid and I got to support him. So that was very appreciative. <laughs> so what did you dream of being when you were a little boy? Uh, probably like most kids, I think you you sort of gravitate to what your surrounding is. And so in that neighborhood, we had amazing athletes that became one of two things a police officer or a firefighter that was it <laughs> uh, we didn't have doctors or those those are people that you went to but that's not something you became <laughs> so the influence around me the coaches and the people the adults really around parents were all police officers and firefighters so i that was really what my aspiration was police or firefighter <laughs> never so thought of sports or anything like or be an nfl player i just never really thought of that because i never had the size so even when i was young i sort of realized that i was going to be on the outside looking in there so how does your transition from lot football and all these things turn into um, a football career of some sort and where do you go from there and how does education become a part of your life um i i was a high school quarterback 
which is what I liked about the game was the intellectual aspect of trying to beat the other team, trying to beat defenses and uh, learning the game so I could actually start calling my own plays, which I did toward the end of my senior year. Uh, but again, I didn't have the size. I got injured a lot. And I had had a couple of uh, small Division One schools and Division II uh, in the Ivy League. I uh, had a tremendous interest from the Ivy League along with uh, U.S. Military Academy. And the only school that I really thought about, there's two schools that I visited, which is Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and Cornell in New York. And I went to visit Cornell in the summer and it was, it's the bottom of a valley. It's this beautiful green, uh, lush foliage everywhere. It's just amazing. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I'd never traveled very much when I was a kid. And I came back and I told my parents, I'm going to Cornell. And my dad said, well, you might want to try and go in it's winter because it's summer and it's going to be a little bit different. <laughs> and so sure enough, I think it was just before we signed the letter of intent, which I believe was still, and it's still February the 2nd, it was summer late January. And I took a plane trip to Cornell. And what I remember at the airport is I was walking out to catch a cab and the doors opened and I walked out and the wind hit me and I just about died. I had never felt that kind of cold in my life. You know, from Miami. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't remember what kind of sweater I have, but I think I had a long sleeve like sweatshirt. <laughs> and this the the following two or three days was just pure suffering. It wasn't it wasn't any fun at all. Snow was, you know, waist high and we were walking through this quad where yes, the snow had been banked on the sides, but the weather was still, you know, fifteen degrees. So I came back and told my father, Yep, I'm not going to Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up uh, at the University of Florida where the weather was a little bit more favorable to my conditions. And I ended up being a walk-on. Wow. Uh, I walked on. Uh, I was invited to walk on. I was, I think, 350 walk-ons. I think I was one of three that made it. And uh, played primarily scout team, which is essentially you're the, the tackling dummy for the first team offense and defense. And since I was on defense, I was a, a safety. I got bowled over by guys that ended up going to the NFL. So I enjoyed it. I was having fun with it, but um, because of the position I was in, I had to sort of stand out, if you will. Mm. So I sort of became a kamikaze on special teams and defenses. I just, uh, I pretty much started knocking people out, but I also knocked myself out in the process. Mm. And after the fourth one, uh, I went to uh, a neurologist uh, at the university hospital and I had a dollar sized lesion on the side of my brain. Wow. And it was a contusion. And he said, um, listen, I just have to kind of give it to you straight is if you get hit there again, you're going to die. It's not, you're not going to be injured. You're, you're going to die. You understand? You're going to have massive hemorrhage. And that sort of was a come to Jesus moment, mm -hmm. if you will, where I realized, okay, now, now I have to make a decision. And that ended my football career. Mm -hmm. And one of the strength coaches reached out to me and said, you know, you spend a lot of time in the weight room. Have you ever thought about strength and conditioning? And the answer was no. Uh, strength and conditioning was simply a means to an end. I mm -hmm. just knew that a couple times a week I went to the weight room and I got this five by eight card out of a file and that was my workout and I penciled it in and I put it back. And at the end of the day, the staff would pull those out and then remake your weights for the next day or the next week, right? Percentages. Very old school, mm -hmm. you know, five by eight cards and a pencil. <laughs> and... He said, you know, I have a 
a student strength and conditioning course, uh, why don't you sign up for it? And, you know, you sort of kind of will see what it's like. Well, I did thinking that I would get sort of an exposure to strength and conditioning. What it really was, was glorified gym cleaner is what this course was. <laughs> you didn't really learn much, but I was around the equipment or was around some of the players that I played with. And I asked a lot of questions and kind of became, became a thorn in some, some of the coaches side. Uh, an internship opened up and I took the internship and that's really where the education kind of sort of started and uh, became the, the stepping stone to the learning experience. And then something opened up. I had a, my college advisor said, Hey, there's a position uh, across the pond. It's perfect for you. I think you're where you're going, where you're headed. This is something that might be dramatic or you may be coming back here and kind of, telling me yeah this is a big mistake and it was uh a an exchange program in moscow at wow. the university and it had to do with their strength and conditioning program primarily dealing with bobsled hmm. i thought i'm from miami i've never even seen a bobsled <laughs> i don't even look at the winter olympics because i i just can't can't relate but she said she was very adamant she had always been very very on point with everything she had, you know, every piece of advice she'd given me. And I said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll apply. And I got it. And I ended up living there about six months with the American exchange family and learning really what it, what it was all about. Uh, there's no fancy equipment. Um, some of the buildings had broken windows where snow would just come in and uh, you learned program design from a very simplistic uh, minimum dose aspect because there was no heat so you had to kind of get in train quickly and get out so it had to matter and it had to count right so the program design couldn't didn't have fluff it was just what do you need and let's 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 give you this and that's exactly what it was um and that's really what i started to learn about programming i realized that we were putting people uh the russia was putting people on the stage with gold medals at a minimal amount of training compared to everybody else in the world and i realized because they actually knew what they were doing mm. And so I learned the sports science of it there and then came back and uh, applied for a GA position at the University of Nebraska, which then was sort of the ground roots movement of strength and conditioning in this country with Boyd Epley at the helm mm -hmm. and got that. And that was the next step. And it was really life altering and life changing. Again, here's a kid from Miami in Nebraska. I mean, talk about a different planet. This <laughs> has just come from the Soviet. Was it the Soviet Union at that point still or Russia at that yes, point? Yes, yes. It was still, I mean, it was, it was, it was Moscow and, you know, Red Star, Red Square and everything was nothing. It was very, very uh, militaristic, um, very controlled, uh, had aspects of where I could go, where I could not go. And my commute was very simple. The home I was in to the university and back, I can't tell you I ever saw a cafe ever in my life there. I just didn't have the time. Hmm. Uh, it was a very regimented schedule, but that's what you needed. Uh, that's what it required. Um, I understood the conditions when I got there. I signed on the dotted line, and um, I understood that I was there for one reason, one reason only, is, is really to learn about what this whole thing about strength and conditioning. What is it? Obviously, from their N equals one standpoint, but they had been very, very successful at the world stage, so they, they, they knew something was right. Yes, you know, drugs were involved as it was in every country around the world, 
but it was what was behind the curtain that was really, really uh, amazing and magical. What I learned there, mm. it was again just another stepping stone to moving forward. And uh, Nebraska being there at that time when it's really starting to flourish and people are starting to recognize that strength and condition, there's a there's a method and a madness to it. That really was the the I would say kind of like the springboard to the next step for me. So you, you discover what I'm reading from you is you discover strength and conditioning as a sort of happenstance, a side effect of being a football mm-hmm. player, lifting weights. Yeah. And then you have these experiences. What do you fall in love with? Um, is it the coaching? Is it the solving problems? Is it what, 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 what catches it was you? those two things. Um, and, and, other things involved, but those two things, it was the ability to solve, solve problems from a coaching standpoint mm. is everybody had different needs and wants and you had the ability or not to try and figure out how do we go from A through Z given all these things, past knee injury, concussions, lack of interest, lack of motivation, um, you were sort of given all these pieces of a puzzle and it was up to you to figure it out. And that absolutely. And to this day fascinates me. Mm. Uh, it's what keeps me going. And when problems come up with other coaches, I, I get tons of phone calls and emails and uh, texts is it's because I enjoy it. Um, it's, there's no burden there for me. I welcome it. Um, I didn't have that. I learned to kind of rely on myself and the books and the research and stuff because I really didn't have someone that I could turn to and uh, as a mentor and say, I had, had these problems and can I help? So you learn to be self-sufficient and, and you learn to block out the noise because there's a lot of noise in strength and conditioning and start realizing what's really important, what really matters, what transfers. And so the process of coaching by virtue of learning to solve problems, which is, again, it's just it's something that fascinates me and uh, it keeps me going. So you go to Nebraska and you, you learn under Boyd Epley, who's obviously a pioneer in the industry. How did that affect you? What, what did, what was your biggest maturation process in going there and spending time with him? Um, I was a routine person. I liked routines. It's, it worked for me. I uh, had a very logical, still have a very logical brain. So sequence of events helps me and the lack of sequence of events rattles me and triggers me. And there's one thing that he said to me in the beginning and probably the very last thing he said when I left and he said, the great ones adapt. Mm. It's a quote that I have up uh, in the office and I look at it and every time I'm having, I had yesterday, one of those days I had lightning hit, a tree and fall and crush my AC unit mm. and just dealing with getting people out there uh, in a timely fashion. And it, it was, again, it, there was no routine. My routine was broken and I was being rattled and triggered. And I came in, I said, you know, I, I got to get out of here. I got to go back to the facility and, um, let these guys do what they do and let me go do what I do. I walked in, I saw that quote, the great ones adapt. And I realized, okay, I have a problem I have to solve. This is, this is strength and condition. Just 
slightly different topic. And I adjusted to the conditions and one is I had no choice. One is two is that I really knew that that's what I do. That's what I do for a living. I just continuously adapt and morph and blend and in fluid. And it all worked out, but that's something I learned there. That's something he taught me. It's something I learned there under Mike Arthur, who was his uh, main assistant is strength conditions is continuously about adapting. Right? You're always adapting. It's never going to go the way you think. Uh, it may go nine out of 10 times the way you think. And that 10 times is catastrophic, but you have to adapt. And the ability to adapt as a coach helps the athlete understand and realize and learn the ability to adapt as an athlete, which is extremely important because, again, uh, the stage is going to change continuously. You're going to be loved, be beloved in one sort of circumstances. In the other one, you're essentially uh, meat. You know, I hate to use that word, but you're really you're a commodity. You get traded. Um, you're like cattle. And so you better learn to adapt and have thick skin very quickly or you're not going to make it as an athlete, regardless of talent and skill. Mm -hmm. right? So I learned, I really learned adaptability there, something I'd never had before in my life. My parents never taught me that. Uh, I was very privileged. I had a great family, um, never went or lacked, uh, never had to. And so adapting was never something I just, was just outside my circle. And that was the first time I really started to understand adaptability. Uh, again, you know, 15 below zero, but you still have to go to work and you still have to train. You still have to do the things you do. So you, you adapt. Well, that's an interesting segue into sort of um, this world of combat, special forces, uh, SWAT types of athletes. So you sort of to, I don't want to leap in your life, but you obviously you're kind of following a football uh, pathway. How do, how do you make the left-hand turn to start working with that type of athlete, um, which adaptation is a huge part of what their life is and their ability to manage all kinds of different circumstances and situations. And what's the attractor there and what drives that? I, I started, as I said earlier, um, really purely accidental. So helping a friend, um, it had nothing to do with special operations. It really had to do with one individual trying to get into that world. And once he was in that world, we continued working together. And I started to see uh, firsthand that this was different. Uh, this, is, this was not a game. Right? This, is, this is life and death now. And there's no prize at the end on Sunday. Uh, there's no win-loss on a win-loss column. Is If you lose, you don't get to come back. Mm. That's pretty different. And so the concept of thinking, how do we work with this individual uh, to get him to a point of, again, what I like, adaptability and the ability to adapt physically and psychologically, um, how do we do that? And that, that was the challenge that then became, I wouldn't say I was uh, burnt out on coaching NFL athletes or anything, but it was a fresh perspective on a new set of puzzles, right? You get a puzzle and you still, you, it's, the puzzle is the same. It's a boat. It's different boats, but it's all boats. And then one day somebody gives you a high rise. So a puzzle, but it's a completely different type of puzzle. And that's sort of the analogy I use and how I would look at it. Um, it was starting to realize that some of these guys had the same injuries concussion wise. I had blasts injuries. And that really became a segue for me to start working with really specific individuals that come back with glass injuries, concussions, and as a result, PTSD, because they did not get the help. They had either misdiagnosed or didn't get the help they wanted. 
So that then became an attractor to me is uh, I know exactly what's going on and I know exactly what to do. Uh, I was able to recover. Uh, albeit it was very, very difficult and long-term, but I, I learned again to what was noise and what was not with respect to concussions and traumatic brain injuries and started to just develop programs on essential recovery, brain recovery hmm. uh, through uh, flotation, through meditation, through um, primarily anti-glycolytic exercise, making sure lactic acid was not a part of it, uh, building up aerobic systems. And I started getting feedback back from these guys that started to get deployed and mostly said, you know, I've, I've never felt better. I sleep better. I move better. Uh, these guys aren't, you're not interested in 400 pound bench presses and 600 pound squats. They need to move from, uh, one shot house to the next. And hopefully, uh, outside the confines of being shot by a sniper, right? That's real world agility. And that's real world change of direction training. Hmm. Uh, I started to use some of the same techniques I use with all athletes to get them to be a better athlete. And then uh, sort of the, the, the way I describe it is we started to just try, try and develop better athlete and then go practice the sport, right? And so for them is we'll do what we can with respect to strength conditioning and building aerobic system and uh, more load capacity. And then you just got to go and do what you got to go do. As they train a tremendous amount of time. Uh, they probably shoot more rounds than any other branch of the military combined. And so that's, again, skill work. So we get them big, kind of fast and strong, help them recover. And then they go and they practice being kind of badasses. And I, I just enjoyed the aspect of these are down-to-earth people. Um, they do a very specialized job. At the end, they're people. They're very good people. Uh, they're very untrusting people. They vet you, which uh, was an interesting process. Uh, and I get it, and I understand that vetting process. is It's a very, very small inner circle, and uh, very few people get to break that inner circle. So I felt very privileged on top of everything to start working with that community. And um, it's probably one of the most gratifying things I think I've ever done in my life. Mm. Okay, a short break here to tell you about our sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning is for treatment skills and protocols and training methods and exercises like an operating system on a smartphone is for applications. Fundamentally, reconditioning brings the worlds of therapy and performance preparation together in one systematic process that makes treatment and training systems more efficient and effective. Level 1 takes you through the fundamental assessment process and gives you a tactical approach to eliminate any issue that stands in the way of your client's progress towards quality movement and a healthy and high-performing state. Level 2 goes deep on context, analyzing and understanding variable movement patterns, gaining clarity on key movement attributes, and being exceptionally precise about your interventions and strategies. It then links to the overall preparation program and becomes deeply considered of the context of that program and the environments of preparation. Finally, our reconditioning specialist mentorship is a completely virtual experience you can engage in from the comfort of your home that allows you to benefit from our 50 years of professional practice in a high-quality community of practitioners. This eight-week program walks you through how to apply this powerful operating system in your environment and your circumstances. 
irons out all the question marks and ensures you are ready to deliver the most effective reconditioning practice to your clients. Head over to reconditioninghq.com to see what our next courses are being held and when our next mentorship is starting. Join the reconditioning revolution. I'm interested, um, and you can take two two sides of this too. What what it was like for you in in the football part of your life, and then and and pro training pro athletes, but then also this part, the emotional cost of uh, and how you've managed that of the investment of yourself in somebody else's dreams, so to speak. So that's called the sport piece. And then when you look at the tactical um, athlete, so to speak investing yourself in their uh, the emotional context of their world which has a lot of there's a lot of fractious as you mentioned elements to that uh, fear risk all these kinds of things so i'm wondering what that cost has been to you and how you've sort of managed that in your own uh, career and not allowed uh, to overcome good question i i actually went through a a burnout period mm. uh when i left Nebraska and started on my own. Um, I had a phone call and somebody said, there's a, there's a position open. We'd like for you to apply for it. And then if it works out, you'll be subsequently interviewed. And I applied for the position. I was a position in pro sports uh, in the NFL and applied for it, got a call, got interviewed and ended up getting the position. And everything was kind of roses until it wasn't. Prior to that time, I had sort of self-actualized, right? I had met Maslow's self-actualization. I had worked for myself. I owned the business. I I couldn't believe I actually got paid to do what I did. Uh, And then everything changed. I sort of gave myself to an organization, uh, what I thought was a culture. And right off the bat, I experienced Patrick Lencioni's uh, three, I think he calls it the uh, th- the three worst things that can happen or, you know, in an organization. Um, I just, I wasn't appreciated. I didn't understand how to be evaluated. And I didn't know if I was making a difference. Mm. Uh, I went to lunch one day with my father and he said, you know, how do you know you're making a difference with these guys? I never thought of that. Mm. He said, you know, they're going to make $25 million with or without you. And that fractured my brain. It really did because Mm. I had always been sort of important, right? I was a stepping stone for a lot of these guys. Now I didn't really understand the role. Uh, They did not need me. So what am I doing here? And the other question he asked, which really kind of put the nail in the coffin was how do you get evaluated? I had never been evaluated. I figured I got the job. I must be doing something good. Goes, yeah, there's a problem there. Mm. And so I never was evaluated. So I didn't know if I was actually doing a good job or not. I, you got a paycheck, but it doesn't mean you're doing a good job. And so that burnout, uh, after a while, I subsequently turned in my resignation and uh, flew back. Essentially, was homeless for a while. Mm. But I'd rather take the homelessness than where I was. It was that it was mentally difficult. There's mental pain, not just the, the concept of hating the job. There's, uh, it was a, three signs of a miserable job. That's what it is. Patrick Lindsay only has three signs of a miserable job. And I had all, all three. Hmm. And that book came, came out 15 years after that. I went through that. But I started to understand then when I started to work with NFL guys, 
the role that I played outside of the team aspect, just as private performance coach, uh, that I did have a small part, but there was a part in dreams, right? And I took that very, very serious. And I went from, I think it's where I switched from being an individual that was focused on the athlete, as I had always done. I understood that these guys had names and personalities and were people, but I didn't really think too much about that. I didn't really actually care. It was how can I make me bigger, faster, stronger? And that incident helped things turn around for me so that I saw these individuals as people, people mm. with a dream, people with uh, goals and aspirations. And I had a tremendous amount of failure that I could lean on and use to help guide some of these guys outside the confines of just a track and uh, a field and weight room. And so that was a valuable, uh, at the time you never see it, but my father said, you know, this, you're, you're going to learn from this and there's going to be a lot of great aspects. I know you don't feel that right now. And he was absolutely right. It was an amazing learning experience that I could use toward uh, the step that I was taking now, which is just going on on my own. With the t- tactical guys, it was very, very different because um, it's a fractured experience, right? They, there is fear. There's, and you can say there's fear in all sports and all activities. This is different. You know, getting shot at and the possibility of not coming back is that's different. That's a game changer. That's a completely different situation. Um, again, how I dealt with that is I personalized it rather than move away from it. I embraced it and I personalized it and it became people first too, which has always been my model people first and athletes and special operators and surfers second. And so I, I made myself be more, uh, made them be more reliable on me for things. And that, that really helped make it so that it wasn't just this symbiotic relationship where it's coach and athlete is it's individual and individual and mentor versus athlete and mentor versus operator. It was, it was different. It just took a different aspect to it. Mm-hmm. And it was, you would think that taking on the emotional context of that, uh, the context is, is changing and actually made it better at, personalized it for me it made it so that um i as we we talked earlier I, you know i don't i never have involved myself in injury aspects but with respect to concussions i don't know anybody who's more of an expert on concussions than i am i've had four and i've had a traumatic brain injury i've, mm-hmm. I've got, gone through the gamut of what it's like to recover and so rather than remove that aspect of myself that i could share and help somebody I didn't want to just be a coach. I, I have some information I can share. It's going to be in a person. And it was for me very personal, but it helped. It helped them recover. It helped uh, me be able to feel more important. And it just, it seemed to have just worked out itself. Mm. Beautiful. I'm going to use that as my little segue point to a thing I do in my, my um, podcast. I discovered a book a number of years ago called The Day You Were Born. And this woman named Linda Joyce from New York wrote it. Wrote it. She's an astrologer and she combined astrology with numerology. So a lot of the science guys struggle with this one, but, but I, sure. I, I have a little fun with it anyway. So you um, are Leo 9. You were born August 9th, correct? Correct. And, um, so your purpose is to separate from the secure and risk yourself in the unknown. 
to use your strong personal perspective to give others the courage to follow their own passion and their own ideas. The greatest pleasure in life is doing what people say you cannot do, Walter Bagot. And no one knows this better than Leo Nye. They do the impossible all the time. However, this doesn't does take its toll. This combination requires that a, in spite of the strong individuals around them, they do what they know is right for them. Freedom of the Leo Nine must come from inner strength and not from exercising force outside. When they are sure of themselves and committed to a goal, opposition dissolves. When they hesitate, others sense their insecurity and oppose opposition grows. Becoming their own person is not easy, but when it's achieved, no one questions their authority. Wow, that's scary. That's pretty right. <laughs> that is pretty right on. And the and I wouldn't say it's a problem, but the the problem I have, I'll use that word, is the emotional investment, right? Mm-hmm. is not just you don't you don't take off your whistle at night and uh, i try and separate who i am from what i do but who i am is what i do mm-hmm. so i that i think that helped me overcome that burnout realizing that i i identified with being a coach and that's all i was and i i really what i really really did was i built a life around a coaching practice and that didn't work and it was everything was coaching and i i just i never surfed i didn't bow hunt i didn't do jujitsu i just didn't do anything all i did was coach and when i came back from that burn i said well that didn't work so let's try and build a coaching practice around life mm-hmm. which was really um which is what i do now and how i change everything so i surf most days i, I go and i take bow hunt trips and i've uh, been able to go back and do my jujitsu and just, just pursue the things I wanted as an individual. And I can still be invested emotionally because again, it's not, I don't, there's no demarcation in the sign in the sand between who I am and what I do. What I do is who I am. It's what I love. And when the phone rings and someone has a problem, which their own phones rang six times this morning and coaches essentially around the world, uh, a couple with burnout issues, a couple with uh, requests for references on, research that they were having a hard time it's it's what i do i realized like it could be three in the morning and it wouldn't be work it's just it's really what i do mm-hmm. but you do have to be careful there is an emotional cost uh you have to separate context from whatever it is that's going on so that you you can compartmentalize the the information in yourself and don't get to a point where it's just complete burnout so what have become, I mean, you mentioned, you know, going back to some of the exercise and sport that you love doing, but what are some of your anchors that keep you maybe in a good place and, and don't let, let yourself cascade to, to burn out again? Or is, uh, meditation is one. Mm. Uh, my high school graduation present from my mother was a transcendental meditation course, mm. which uh, I wanted a Camaro. <laughs> You know, Those could be me, two different things. When she gave me, yeah, when she gave me the envelope, I thought it was a title to a Camaro because I've been saying for the past six months, I really, I really need a Camaro. And when I opened it up and it said transcendental meditation, I looked at her and she said, "You know, it's going to take you twenty-five years to understand this." And I'm thinking, twenty-five years? I want a Camaro. But she was right on the money. Uh, I went to the course. Uh, I wanted to make her proud. She had to spend the money and the time and the effort and use it sporadically and then after that burnout went back to it 
And that was really uh, magical in the sense that it helped me to build this space between stimulus and response. The space widened and I had choice and now I could respond. I didn't have to react. Hmm. So I became a less reactionary person. I learned to respond, not react. Uh, completely changed really everything for me. Um, and so I would say starting number one is, is my practice is I meditate every morning, a minimum of 10. I, if I can do 10 minutes twice a day, I'll do that. And then surfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're surfing and when you're on the board and you're out there, uh, there are no thoughts except the next wave um, and the next wave after that and the next wave after that. I'm not thinking uh, at all about coaching or bills or where I have to go next. It's, it's where's the next wave. And it really just washes. And it's, it's a funny term to use because you're in the ocean and, and there's water, but it really does wash away every thought that you have. And it's, it's, it's mindful exercise in a sport and activities as I know uh, anything else is same with being on the mat in jujitsu. You, you better not be thinking about anything else or you're going to be choked or you're going to be put in a lock and you're going to be tapping out very quickly. So it's very mindful being on the mat. You be on the mat when you're on the board and be on the board. Here again with another word from our sponsors, Zenkai Sports, who want to let you in on a little secret. Performance apparel hasn't changed much in the last 20 years. Most apparel is still based on moisture-wicking synthetics, which not only make you more overheat faster, but are toxic for your body and the environment. Synthetics don't biodegrade, so that stinky workout shirt you have to throw out after six months, it lasts for thousands of years in landfills. Zenkai is the only cotton-based training apparel on the market, keeping your body safe from those scary petroleum-based synthetics found in most workout gear and giving you that extra edge when it counts. Be a part of the solution and join the revolution for better apparel technology at www.zenkaisports.com. What's in your ZNA? For 20% off your entire order, please use the discount code LYM20. We've, you know, we're of the same generation. Um, I think you said you're born in 63 around there, same as myself, mm-hmm. but um, you, you know, this industry has changed quite a bit since we got started in it. And um, there's the access to information is almost, almost overwhelming on the opposite side of the, the spectrum. Whereas when we grew up, I mean, the, the access to information was pretty, pretty Spartan. Um mm-hmm. You know, how do you counsel uh, the younger professional now to, on on the one hand, take advantage of that information and the, the, the availability of it, but on the other side, to stay anchored to, um, say, fun, some fundamentals and some, some things that, and, and not get overwhelmed by it in some sense? That's hard, right? Because yeah. there's so much information out there, Scotty. There's so many resources, like you said, I, I didn't have probably 95% of the stuff that I'm, it's, it's available to me now. Mm-hmm. And so I find myself just like everybody else, uh, you, you start getting drowned out uh, and overwhelmed with the noise. Right? Not everything is important. It's uh, again, going back to my time in Russia is where I learned there is not, not everything is important. Every time I would write a program, um, 
one of the coaches would ask me, why are you riding that exercise? Why that set? Why those reps? And, you know, I didn't have an answer all the time. I just thought that's what the athletes needed. And they were, they kept saying no, yeah, very broken English, but it was no 99% of the time. No, no. <laughs> so you had to really, really understand. Number one is what are the needs of the sport? And you had to be an expert on that. And then you had to understand the needs of the athlete, the individual athlete. And so there's no real room for a lot of noise when it comes to that or fluff is there's specific set of ingredients that are needed here. And I learned that there, not everything is important. I kept, uh, you know, again, in very broken English, I, kept, I think I got told that a million times. If I got told one, not everything is important. You have to be able to know what's important and what's not. And that's difficult. But I think when you start really paying attention to uh, the research and what others before you uh, and alongside you have spent time and effort doing the work, um, then there's no need to reinvent the wheel. The information is out there. You just have to decide what it is that you're looking for. And something I think is super important, and I've been mentoring coaches a lot lately, and this is the piece of advice I've given is you, you have to build a cadre Right. You have to build a, an inner circle of people that you trust that, you know, if you pick up the phone and you, and you say, I'm completely confused here that they're going to give you an honest opinion, but based on not just, uh, you know, their whims and their fancies, but based on fact, based on research, based on studies, uh, it could be anecdotal and I'm okay with that. You tell me that, uh, you've been doing something for 30 years since work. I'm going to listen to you. I don't care what the research says. So I, I think what works really well is you, you have to build a cadre of people that you trust, that you have faith in. They're in the profession. Um, they don't necessarily have to be much older than you are. I have, I have guys in my inner circle that are much younger than I am. Um, I was probably practicing strength and conditioning when, you know, they were probably just born. But that doesn't mean that they're not smart individuals and they, they have different experiences. I can, I've, I've learned, I can learn from anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, my time in Nebraska taught me that is I can learn from anybody. So uh, I think the way to get through the noise is you have to understand, again, if you're working with specific teams or sports, what are the needs of the sport? What's the need of this individual athlete, which may be different than the 10 other guys that you have. Um, use a minimal amount of dose, uh, because there's something called recovery when everybody has a point where load becomes intolerable. And so you can load an athlete all you want. You're going to have to recover that athlete from load. I've, I've always termed myself as a load manager. Um, you can call me coach and that's, that's fine. But what, what most of us are in certain conditions, we're load managers. We prescribe load and we help the athlete recover from that load. So uh, I've never forgotten that. And I've always realized that that's, super, super important to keep in mind uh, that that's part of the equation. So when I'm looking for information, there's set in specific areas where I'm looking for these days. Um, recovery is paramount because it doesn't matter what you prescribe. They better be recovering from that load. Um, I really think that there's just too much noise, right? You get on Twitter and I got on Twitter to share information. Um, that's really the whole purpose of me being on Twitter. And the more information I shared, the more I realized I was overloading people. 
Mm-hmm. So I've cut back and I've been very, very mindful of the information that I put out. So I don't just retweet and quote or send out tweets just because I need to for today. If it's important and if it's on my timeline, then you probably would want to take a look at it because I don't, I'm mindful of not being part of the noise, being more part of the uh, solution to just getting good, good information. Hmm. Well, if you, um, if you met George of just coming back from the Soviet Union now, um, what would you tell him? What would you say to him? It all works out in the end. Hmm. Um, there is something I've noticed regardless of my level of stress and fatigue, mental anguish on things where I thought, you know, I don't know what my first step is. And that started with me. uh, The moment I left college, I started applying for jobs that were the the average job was paying about back then somewhere between 19 and $22,000 a year. Hmm. A lot of money. Uh, My roommate worked at McDonald's and actually made more money than that. And you know, you, your argument could be, well, you know, you're not in it for the money. Well, yeah, but you still have to eat. You mm-hmm. have to pay rent and utilities and stuff like that. But I started to understand that, yes, there was a need for me doing what I needed to do. But at what cost? And my father challenged me. I kept complaining to him all these jobs are, they're like $20,000. Like they're, it's the lowest I've ever seen in any profession I've ever seen. It's a cops are starting at 30. And, you know, he looked at me and he said, so, but that's you working for someone else. Right. And I said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you work for yourself? Why don't you start it and see what, where that goes? And that's really how I started is I jumped in the deep end of the pool with a hundred pound vest without really knowing how to swim. <laughs> and, Going back to what I said, it always works out. It worked out. It will always work out. Now, you do have to apply yourself. Uh, you have to work hard. You have to kind of understand what direction you're going. I knew after I sort of cleaned some of the cobwebs off that direction where I was going, and I didn't look back. I knew I wasn't going to be a basketball guy. I'm not a baseball guy either. I could probably coach those sports and the guys in those sports, and I do. That's not my preference. I know what I'm good at. I know uh, where I continuously get a phone call about, and there's no coincidence. I'm getting I'm getting called now a lot for mentoring advice and for guidance. And I thought, well, you know, it's funny because maybe that's my next segue, right? Maybe the, the time for me to be on the field and be in the weight room has changed, and it's more of a hybrid position, which has always been for me. It's been coaching consultant. Uh, maybe that, maybe that's the next direction, but I know one thing, Scott is it always works. It'll always work out in the end. And so a young George will hear that and hear that daily understanding that no matter what you do, you have to have faith that in the end it's going to work out. So go ahead and jump in the deep end of the pool with hundred pound vest without knowing how to swim. That's awesome. Um, as usual, when I meet, people for the first time in these conversations an hour flies by very quickly so my last question for you sir is you will pass from this earth one day hopefully not for a very long time but what do you want to be remembered for or do you how do you want people to remember you um that i cared 
but I'm more than a coach. Uh, at the end of the day, and people know that phrase that's associated with me as people first, is if you want to put that uh, on a gravestone, on a celebration of life banner, I don't care what it is, but make sure mine says people first because that's the most important thing for me. Awesome. Well, it has been an honor to sit, sit with you for an hour, sir, and get to know you. It'll be a privilege one day to sit and have a, a beer or whatever it is that uh, we would prefer on a beach somewhere in Miami. But until then. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you very much, Scott. Yeah. Very much. Pleasure. So. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.